The evolution of the rainbow of colors we see in nature has intrigued biologists for centuries. Colors of plants and animals are produced in different ways, most commonly by the creating of chemical pigments, like the xanthophils that make carrots orange and autumn leaves yellow. Another way is by the microscopic structures of organisms. Until recently, nearly all of the studies of structural coloration have been in animals, such as the iridescent blue of peacock feathers and butterfly wings. A new study, headed by a biologist at the University of Colorado in Boulder, has extended our understanding of the hows and whys of structural coloration in plants, particularly the remarkable blue fruits of lantana, which lives in gardens and along roadsides. Her interdisciplinary team has drawn upon cutting-edge tools to understand what causes fruits to be blue. This is Undisciplined. I'm Nalini Nadkarni. Our guest today is Dr. Miranda Sinnett Armstrong from the University of Colorado Boulder. Welcome, Miranda. Thank you so much for having me. Great to have you. I found your studies of the structural blue color of plant fruit to be just really intriguing. Um, and I'm looking forward to learning more about what you did and your co-authors and so forth. But before we get into the study, I'd like to introduce you to our listeners. Miranda grew up in New Hampshire and did her undergraduate work at Brown University. She received her PhD at Yale University and then studied at the University of Cambridge in the United Kingdom. She's now a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Colorado in Boulder, of the state right next door to us here in Utah. So Miranda, thanks for being with us. Before we start on the paper itself, I'd really like to get a little background about the complex system that you've been working with and also the cutting edge tools that you've worked with so that I can better understand the particulars that we'll get to later on. So my first question is whether you could just sort of talk about color in nature and why color, especially of fruits in particular, is of great interest to evolutionary biologists. Yeah, so color, uh, there's all sorts of colors out there in nature and different colors serve lots of different purposes. So in animals, there's lots of kind of colors that serve as crypsis and help to hide the animal or for mate selection. But in plants, it's really different. Um, and fruit colors in particular are, in general, we think that they're primarily for attracting animals to come meet the fruit. And then by eating the fruit, they ingest the seed and then they wander off and they poop it out somewhere else and disperse the seed away from the plant. Well, that sounds pretty important in terms of evolution and, and uh, natural selection. So that's a great answer. And, you know, I, I'm going back in my own memory, back to my college biology classes, which was actually quite a while ago. But I remember that colors in nature are created in different ways. There's structural color and then they're color from pigments or chemicals. And I'm wondering if you could first describe how structural coloration works. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's there's sort of two major mechanisms of making color. And in structural color, what you have is a physical structure that's typically kind of similar in size to wavelengths of light. So if you remember back to your intro biology class or high school biology, uh, wavelengths of light are something like 400 to 700 nanometers. So very, 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 very tiny. And then structural colors are things that are even smaller and can actually interfere with those wavelengths of light to then reflect some wavelengths of, over others, which is how you get color. And I think that, as I remember, the structural color also makes for iridescence. That is, the colors look different if you look at or an animal 
or a human looks at it from different angles. Talk about that. Yeah, yeah. So not all structural colors are iridescent, but all iridescence is structural color. Um, and basically, like you said, it's when you look at an object and you, cha you can change the angle that you're looking at it and you see different wavelengths coming back at your eyes, which is how you process it. So you see those different wavelengths and that appears as different colors shifting depending on the angle that you're looking at the object. There's a couple different kinds of structures that can create that effect. And I can go into detail about the different yeah. types of structures. Why don't you, can you give us a little more detail on that? Because I think it's really important to understand that in order to understand what you and your co-authors found out. Yeah, so one type of structure that can create iridescence is what's called a multi-layer reflector. And basically, in a multi-layer reflector, it's exactly what it sounds like. There are multiple layers, and typically you'll have sort of a background material, and then you'll have a layer of some other material, and those two materials will alternate uh, throughout this structure. And you can have many, many layers. They can be very ordered or they can be very disordered. Um, and if they are relatively flat to the surface, then they can look different wavelengths depending on what angle you're looking at because the thickness of the layers changes depending on the angle that you're looking at them at. Um, and so you can get iridescence coming from these multi-layered structures. It's so cool that scientists know this. It's amazing. I also remember that structural coloration occurs or at least has been studied far more frequently in animals than in plants, like peacock feathers and butterfly wings and, and even cuts of animal meat are considered to have structural color. And so, but, but I, I guess that it does occur in plants as you and your colleagues have, have described. Tell us about that. Yeah, so structural color in plants is a lot more rare as far as we know. Um, in animals, sometimes as a plant person, sometimes it feels like every other bird and every other beetle is structurally colored. But in plants, there's literally six or seven that we know of in fruits. There's maybe 15 or so in flowers. There's a handful of leaves. So there's really not that many that we know of in plants. I will say, I think we're going to find more. <laughs> the more we look, the more we will find. But it's definitely a lot more rare in plants than it is in animals. Fantastic. Okay. Well, let's get to your paper. I was wondering if you could describe the approach that you use, just sort of briefly describing the different tools you use to understand the variety of ways of looking at these structures at that very, very small scale you discussed earlier. So I typically use what's called a transmission electron microscope, which is basically a very powerful advanced microscope that instead of shooting light and sort of looking at an object with light, it's shooting electrons at an object. And so we cut extremely thin slices of fruit tissue in this case. We cut very, very thin slices. We shoot electrons at it. And that lets us look at structures that are 80 nanometers in size. And remember, light is something like 400 to 700. So these are really, really small. They're much smaller than wavelengths of light. I also read in your paper something about optical simulations. Can you talk about that as an approach that you used? Yeah, so uh, the transmission electron microscopy allows us to visualize what the structure looks like, but that doesn't actually tell us how it works. And so to figure out how the structure is working in the sort of physics and optics sense, we then have to simulate that structure. And then by, through simulating it, we can figure out uh, sort of how light is interacting with that structure and whether or not the structure that we've simulated can actually generate the color that we're measuring from a fruit. So in this case, we're measuring blue fruit color. So we simulate a structure and we say, oh, can this structure actually reflect blue light? And um, that's sort of roughly how you would use optical simulations to confirm whether or not the structure that you're looking at can actually create the optical effect that you think it's creating. Wow. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, I know that your focus was on a, a particular species of plant, the lantana or lantana plant. Um, could you describe to our listeners what it looks like? What does this plant look like? What does it smell like? What, what sort of habitats do we find it in? 
Yeah, lantana is sort of a wonderful and a horrible plant, to be honest. Um, they're super common in gardens. They have these gorgeous inflorescences, which is a cluster of flowers. So they have these amazing clusters of flowers that can be all sorts of colors. They can be red, they can be yellow, purple, white. They often change color during the development of the flowers as the flowers get older. Um, they smell really, I think they smell wonderful. Uh, they are generally kind of small plants, but in tropical regions, they can be much larger. But unfortunately, they're also super invasive all over the world. So in India, South Africa, Australia, sort of tropical places all over, there's just a lot, a lot of destruction is caused by lantana plants that have escaped. I, I wasn't aware of that. That's really interesting to know. Now that we know a little bit about the background, your approach, uh, what the plant looks like, I was wondering if you could just summarize your results. Give us a few of your take-home findings. Yeah, so like I mentioned earlier, um, there aren't that many structurally colored plants and especially not that many structurally colored fruits that we know of. And so we were, I, I was basically wandering around downtown Boulder, Colorado and saw this plant and the metallic blue fruits that develop from those flowers. And we wanted to understand how that blue color came to be and, and sort of how the plant is actually making that blue color. Um, so we had already been working on a different structurally colored plant called Viburnum tinus. And we thought, oh, well, maybe this lantana plant is doing something similar to that one. So we started looking at it under the microscope, the TEM, the transmission electron microscope. We did these optical simulations and we basically found that, yeah, this is another example of a multi-layered structure that's creating the blue color of these fruits, which is a very metallic and unusual looking blue color. Fantastic. I love this image of you walking down the street and just saying, hey, how about that for a scientific question to pose? And and now you've answered it. So that that's a very satisfying story. I yeah, one of the cool things about structural color in plants is not that many people really go out and look for it, which means that we actually do kind of wander around looking at gardens and street plants. And we've found a bunch of the structurally colored plants that we've studied, like myself and other people that I've collaborated with. You just find them by walking down the street. Um, so it makes you really think that there's probably a lot more out there that maybe we just haven't found yet. So, so these other plants, um, I was wondering if the plants that you, the plant that you studied, lantana, and then you mentioned this other plant by uh, by Burnham tinnus, are they related to each other? Do they share like a common phylogenetic background, or has this trait sort of developed independently? Could you tell us about that and talk about how you how you sort of ascertained whether or not that was either independently evolved or whether this is something that follows lineages. Yeah, yeah. So that's a really interesting question. Um, Lantana and viburnum are quite distantly related. So it's pretty clear that they evolve these structures independently. Um, there's many independent origins of fleshy fruits that are like the kind of fruit that an animal or human, but that an animal would eat. Many different sort of times that that has evolved throughout the plant tree of life. And in the, the example of these lantanas and the viburnums, they've done it totally separately. But one thing that is quite interesting, we didn't actually talk about this in the paper, but both lantana and the viburnum tinus fruits, they both have relatives that also have blue fruits. So the structure would have evolved kind of farther back in time, and then those species diversified later on and became a bunch of separate species. Um, so there's actually a little cluster of, of groups of, of species that has these structural colors, both in lantana and then also in the viburnums. Interesting. Very interesting. You know, to me... This paper has been really fascinating because it reveals a basic understanding of the workings of nature, um, which is always of interest uh, to scientists. But I'm wondering if there are 
practical applications? Are there things that the public might say, oh, thank goodness they did that piece of research because now that will help society or help us create something new? Or, I mean, what is it? Is it purely basic or do you see that there might be some applications to that to other societal sectors outside of academia? One of the things that I think uh, is maybe most interesting for me as an evolutionary biologist and sort of evolutionary ecologist is what is actually the role of seed dispersal in invasive species? So like I mentioned, lantana, super invasive all over the world, causes a lot of destruction. But a lot of the focus, not all the focus, but a lot of the focus in invasive species research tends to be more on uh, pollination or on growth and things like that. But how a plant actually gets from being in somebody's garden out into the forest, a lot of the time that's going to involve a bird that came along and ate the fruit. And so understanding the color of these fruits starts to tell us something more about why birds are eating these plants in, or eating the fruits of these plants in particular and where are they taking the, the seeds, where are they depositing them, how much do they grow. Um, and so color is really just one small part of that. It's the part where the plant's interacting with the bird. But it's part of this larger story about seed dispersal and in the case of lantana about invasions and um, sort of all of the destruction that it causes in different habitats around the world. There's also some interesting potential uh, more kind of like engineering. I don't really know how to put that exactly, but but there's some, some interesting like applications that you might think of as being a little bit more typical. Like in the group that I'm in at the University of Cambridge right now, there's people who are working on developing different um, functions of cellulose, which is another way that plants make structural color is using cellulose instead of the way that these fruits are doing it. But there's potential to develop these fruit structures as well um, to make maybe like paints that are easily biodegradable and can create this metallic blue color, but it's totally non-toxic or cosmetics or sort of other types of functions like that. Wow. You know, Undisciplined is really interested in researchers and in studies that draw upon multiple ways of knowing, of different lenses, different disciplines. And I note that you have this paper that you published um, has five authors, five co-authors that come from three different countries. And I was wondering yes. if you could share with us, um, how did you go about assembling your research team? That's, I guess, a good question. Back when I was a grad student, I I was wandering around in Freiburg, Germany, trying to figure out what on earth to do my dissertation on. And I was walking through a botanic garden and saw the fruits of Viburnum tinus, which is that other uh, structural fruit I mentioned earlier. So I saw the fruits of that species and basically looked at it and was like, that's the weirdest fruit I've ever seen. <laughs> and it, it's very bizarre. They're sort of super metallic, very unusual looking. Um, and so I went back to my advisor at Yale and, and said, oh, like, we got to figure out what's going on with this particular species. And he studied viburnum. And so we reached out to some people at Cambridge, including Sylvia, and asked, like, do you think it's structural color? How can we go about studying this? And she she had actually kind of already started working on it with a grad student in her lab at the time. His name was Rox Middleton. And Rox um, and I and Sylvia and a whole bunch of other people then worked on this viburnum tinus question of what the structure is. Um, but that's where I met Sylvia and also Yuogawa and some of the other people who are co-authors on the paper was all through this kind of very fortuitous walking around in a botanic garden and just wondering what was happening in these plants. <laughs> you seem to do a lot of wandering around, <laughs> looking with your eyes open at the world around you and generating fantastic questions. I love it. It's, so it's my favorite way to find new things to work uh, on. I think that's a great way to on. find stories. I think that's a great way to find stories. Um, you know what, Undisciplined, we also understand that scientific studies are built on the shoulders of previous work 
and previous researchers. And, and so I have two questions about that. One of them you sort of answered, which is about whether you based your work on a particular body of research. Yeah, so that's, that's a really good question. Um, one of the things that's quite fascinating about structural color is that there's a lot of differences between the ways that plants do it and the ways that animals do it. So animals make a whole bunch of structures that plants, as far as we know anyway, don't make at all. Uh, and so there is a body of literature out there on structural color, but there's not as much on plants and the kinds of, of structures that plants actually make. So there were a few known structurally colored fruits before we identified lantana. There were just a couple of them. Um, and so in some sense, this is building on that work, looking at multilayered structures in Viburnum tinus, and then a different type of multilayered structure in Polia and Margaritaria. Um, so they have a multilayer structure, but it's built totally differently. Uh, and that was really it in terms of structural color in fruits. Um, there were two papers earlier on Eleocarpus and Delabria, uh, which are two other structurally colored fruits from Australia. And those it sort of were, were great descriptions of the first two structurally colored fruits ever described. But there's also a lot that we don't know about them, including they didn't do optical simulations. They didn't have good understanding of the chemistry. Um, so there really wasn't a ton to base this Lantana work on, except just like a couple papers on some of these earlier structurally colored fruits. Interesting. And you did that work on Aleocarpus, is that right? Uh, I'm working. I'm working on that now. Yes. Oh, you're working on that now. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah. Great. Yeah. David Lee published that in the early 1990s um, and has some really great images of the fruits in there. But back then, I think some of the technology for actually identifying what the structure is made out of just wasn't quite there. And so one of the things that I've been working on, along with Yogawa and Sylvia and some other people, has been to uh, figure out how do you actually figure out what these things are at the nanoscale because it's actually quite challenging to identify something that's only 80 nanometers in size. Gosh, that is amazing. I'm wondering about what you would recommend to your research team or maybe to other research teams in terms of specific areas for future research that emerges from what you discovered. Oh, there, there's more questions than I could possibly even enumerate. I think some of the things that I'm most excited about are like, can we find more of these? Are there more structurally colored fruits out there? Um, and that might seem a little bit like just counting things out there in nature. But the th reality is that we don't know how these things evolved. We don't know why they evolved. We don't know how they function. We don't know how they uh, in influence interactions between plants and animals. And the more that we find, we're able to characterize, we're able to look at their evolution. And sort of all of that helps to tell us, like, why would a plant bother making this very unusual metallic blue fruit color in the first place? We have a few hypotheses, but you know, we need more species to be able to test those hypotheses more rigorously than just say, oh, well, we saw this pattern in one, but you know, we don't know if it really holds true in all of them. So the more that we have, the better. A consequence of the research is that you've laid a groundwork really for other work to examine the role of color and how that color is created by different members of the plant family in the future. Yeah, yeah, very much. I am super excited to look at the evolution of the structure across lantana, look at the ways that it influences interaction, like which animals come to eat the fruits, um, and then also extend that to other groups of structurally colored fruits, including Eleocarpus, Viburnum, and then any more new ones that we find. Yeah. Uh, yeah just a, a question popped into my head as you were talking about that. I'm thinking about flamingos and their feathers and how they derive that coloration from the brine or the shrimp that they eat. And I'm wondering whether there's any connection between the colors of fruits, in particular these blue fruits, and the, the birds or the dispersers that 
that eat these fruits and their coloration. Is there any pattern to that or do we need more basic data in order to examine that question? Yeah, that, that's a really funny question. Uh, I, I think probably the answer is no, but I will say that the Elecarpus fruits, which are sometimes called blue quandong, uh, they're these really cool bright metallic fruits uh, from Australia. Well, they're, they're from sort of all over Southeast Asia down to Australia, but, but the ones in particular that have been studied for structural color are in Australia and they're eaten by cassowaries. Uh, and if you've ever seen a cassowary, it's a gigantic bird. Uh, looks a bit like an ostrich, except that it has all of this blue structural coloration on it. And I'm pretty sure that that's completely unrelated to the fact that it eats these fruits. But I do find that to be a very kind of curious um, yeah. observation, I guess. Well, it might be another Miranda walk around looking at cassowaries and their fruits and coming up with a really cool hypothesis like that. So. That would be great. Cassowaries are quite dangerous. So I try to keep my distance yeah, from yeah, them. Like camera trapping of cassowaries eating fruits sounds like a dream. Right. You know, and now I'd like to shift just a little bit again and talk about you and your career. And I, I saw from your website that you actually double majored in biology and linguistics as an undergraduate. So your pathway, so to speak, was not sort of a straight arrow through through the STEM sciences. And I'm, I'm wondering if and, and how your earlier interest in studies in linguistics, I feel somewhat far away from STEM, um, affected the way you think and do the work that you do now. So they might seem totally unrelated, but my favorite class when I was studying linguistics was phonetics. And in phonetics, it's, it's sort of basically how the mouth makes different sounds. And a part of that class was learning how to make all sorts of different sounds that occur in different languages. And so I would just go around like talking to myself, making all of these sort of sounds that don't occur in English, but occur in all of these different and interesting languages all over the world. And then, of course, I would be out there listening to people, listening to people talking in languages that I didn't understand. I mean, like, oh, I wonder what sound that is. And can I make that sound? So I actually think a lot of this, like just wanting to see and look at weird and unusual things out there in the world. It's actually pretty similar for me between the linguistics background and my biology interests and just like what's what's what are the weird things that are happening out there and, and how can I learn about them? I think that's a great answer because really when you come down to it, you know, science comes from the Latin word CO to know to the fullest extent. And so so much of science is this pure curiosity driven uh, work that that scientists say, I'm curious about this. I'm curious about that. And sometimes it doesn't lead to anything, it, but sometimes it leads to studies like yours, which then in turn um, lead to applications to society. So I think that's a really great story. I love that. Yeah. And I think you never know. It's like you, you might think, oh, this isn't that relevant or, oh, there's not that many structurally colored fruits. But the reality is like we have no idea. We might actually learn something really fundamental about how plants make cuticle, which is this like waxy covering on the outside of all land plants, essentially, that protects them from drying out. And it's possible that this structural color in lantana is made out of cuticle. And so if we're able to uncover how exactly the plant modified that in order to create the structural color, like that might teach us a lot about sort of a fundamental part of all plants. And so I feel like you never know exactly what is going to be interesting or important to society, but you know it's worth it to go out there and find funny things and interesting things and try to understand how they work. Because again, you just never know how it's going to turn out. Exactly. That, that, that's a really good response for a scientist to have. Um, Miranda, I see you as a scientist who's really addressed many questions in the realm of science and its application to society. And I, I think you're doing amazing work in the field of ecology and evolutionary biology. And I'm sure that many in our audience, especially our young listeners, are wondering how they might be able to do work like yours. And I'm, I'm wondering if you have 
any advice or guidance for those listeners? Yeah, well, that's a good question. I think for students in high school, definitely sort of explore what you're interested in, try new things. Um, don't limit yourself just to medicine because so many people in ecology and evolution started out as pre-med and ended up discovering that nature is really interesting too. Um, so definitely don't don't limit yourself to whatever you think you're interested in at the moment. For college students, I would say explore. Go do internships in interesting places. Go travel. Go try different fields. Like don't Again, don't limit yourself to whatever you think you want. I, in all honesty, had no idea I was ever going to do anything related to physics or chemistry. I was so bad at physics and chemistry in high school and in college. I wasn't interested. It wasn't fun. But now it's like I found this interesting, weird little niche that brings in biology and physics and chemistry. And suddenly it's all fascinating to me. So I just say don't write anything off. Try things and explore and see if you can get involved in research and go from there. Terrific response. I hope every listener out there is taking that and keeping it in their head because I think that's a real truism. I think that's that's very wonderful. Um, Miranda, thank you so much for taking the time to share this fascinating piece of research with our listeners. I really enjoyed listening and learning from, from your perspectives. And I just want you to know that we at Utah Public Radio wish you and your research team the very best for your work in the future. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Nalini Nadkarni. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. Big ideas.